0: and to claim CME CE credit. Rick W. is checking in on the Frankly Speaking podcast team. He lets us all know and thanks us as this is our 1 million download mark has been surpassed. Additionally, this is the 200th podcast of Frankly Speaking about family medicine. He asked the team, hey guys, which one's your favorite? Hi, this is Frank Domino. And joining me today is the entire podcast team to celebrate with you our 200th podcast for Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine. I invited all our podcasters to join me on today's session to discuss what's their favorite podcast over the last two plus years. So in that that vein, I'd like to say, hey, Susan, which was your favorite podcast?
1: Hey, Frank. there are so many, but the, the one that really hit me, and I think it's it's what changes practice, what's what's going to help you help your patients. And I think the simplicity of this is was so profound and I think that's what hit me was the one um, that I did on artificial sweeteners in and, and postmenopausal women um, because the correlation, and again, this was an observational study, uh so you you have to just say there's an association between this. But they found an association between intake of two or more artificially sweetened beverages um daily or a couple at least um five times a week, with an increase of um ischemic stroke, uh cardio um cor- uh, coronary heart disease, all cause mortality and also weight gain. And I don't know if you know any menopausal women, but they drink a lot of artificially sweetened beverages. And this, uh, I, and in my own practice, I was able to help at least two women change their behavior. One of them had had a history of TIAs, and actually reported back improved cognition over the uh, like six months after she changed and felt better. And it's such a simple, simple change, and it's something that many providers may not even be assessing. So that's why I found it um, one of my favorites, because I think it had such a prof- could have such a, a profound impact.
0: I'll, I'll agree completely. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, you're kidding. Uh, what, what shocks me the most is the weight gain piece. You know, yeah. people don't drink artificially sweetened beverages because they taste good. They do it <laughs> so that <laughs> to try right. to help themselves take yeah. in less calories. And it turns out that that didn't work. And then the the rest of it is really remarkable so I, I couldn't agree more i think it's probably one of our most important and probably most um likely to have an impact uh podcast so thank you that's great
1: it was uh, my pleasure it really it changed my behavior as well <laughs> yeah.
0: so um so bob welcome welcome to the group podcast uh which which podcast of yours was your favorite
2: you know, I just want to just chime in for a minute there on what uh, Susan was just talking about. I think there's lots of uh, of uh, so perimenopausal men that drink uh, <laughs> artificially sweetened uh... <laughs> I've, I have really since I've been listening to these uh, been trying to drink a lot more water myself, which is uh, which really works well. but anyways, uh, my favorite podcast uh, in many ways was the one we did here back in January earlier this year, Skip the colonoscopy and uh, this actually engendered a lot of discussion with uh, with, with folks uh, uh, locally here when i when I presented this and what this was, uh, you may recall, it was a report in the British medical journal here, and they looked at data. Uh, look at the effectiveness of colorectal cancer screening programs, and they actually came up with a new guideline, and they recommend a shared decision-making model, which I love, and it's for those individuals that they, if you estimate their colorectal cancer risk, colorectal cancer risk, uh, if it's over 15 years, if it's less than three eh, percent, no screening is really necessary. So, really, what I liked about this is there's, um, you know, the idea here that we're really thinking about key concepts that are involved in providing high-value care. Now, uh, the first here is what we call personalized medicine. Rather than just saying what we've done for you, hey, you're 50 years old, you know, time to get your PSA, time to get your colonoscopy, time to get your mammogram. Instead of saying, let's assess the personal risk and finding out, is somebody at high risk, medium risk, or low risk? And in this study, they actually presented a new calculator called the Q Cancer Calculator. This takes into consideration age, sex, ethnicity, BMI, smoking, along with other personal, medical, and family history, to estimate a 15-year risk of developing colorectal cancer. And basically what they said was, if your risk is less than 3%, you know, the decision to skip screening is reasonable. Those at higher risk then, they presented options, and it could have been FIT testing every year or every other year, sigmoidoscopy, I'm not sure anybody does those much anymore, or colonoscopy. Of course, if anything was positive, you would need the colonoscopy. So this is why this is my favorite, because it talks about Let's personalize what we're doing. Let's really try and, and we're seeing more and more of these risk calculators out there. Of course, you always have to look at the risk calculator and say, where's that coming from? And, you know, as as part of that, but I love the idea now that we're having risk calculators using this more and more, whether it's uh, looking at osteoporosis or statin use or whatever and uh, doing that. But also the the other part of this, Frank, is we can't lose track of shared decision-making. So you're talking with your patient and finding out what their values are and how concerned are they about their level of risk and how involved do they want to be balancing out the, uh, the risks versus the benefits of whether it's a screen treatment or testing or, or therapy or something. Lovely example of that in this podcast of Skip the Colonoscopy.
0: Bob, thank you. Um, is the Q calculator something that people can, can find online?
2: Yes, in fact, I, I think if you go to the, the that frankly speaking uh, episode, it was episode one fifty four I believe we put a link in in uh, uh, on there if we didn't, we should do that.
0: All right, um, I will tell you that this particular podcast engendered a fair amount of comments from our audience, especially the gastroenterologists who continue to tell me that they Hate the title and think we're making a huge mistake, but I think Bob, this is a great podcast, and I love its findings. So, thanks for sharing. Okay, Jill, Thank you're you, up Frank. next. Jill, you're up next. Um, which uh, which which podcast of
3: yours was your favorite?
4: Thank you, Frank. Just like Susan and Bob, I you know there were many, but the one I'm going to bring forward today is the one about an uncomfortable problem: recurrent urinary tract infections in women, and the main thing is is that it's because it's such a common problem that, you know, 60% of women are going to have a urinary tract infection in their lifetime, so it's a very, very common. So it was released back in August of 2019, and it was a guideline document that we, we went from, and it was guidance on the management of patients with recurrent UTIs, and it was uncomplicated UTIs, not, not patients that had you know, congenital anomalies or anything else going on, and it was to prevent the inappropriate use of antibiotics, which would decrease the risk of antibiotic resistance, Um, basically reduce all the adverse effects that can come along with antibiotic use, and to really talk about the prevention and improve the quality of life for women with recurrent UTIs, and hopefully overall reducing uh, UTI events. So mainly in this... uh, Discussion: We talked about uh, a young college student. She was 23, and she had had, you know, some recurrent urinary tract infection. She had had three in a year, and really um, had been treated with antibiotics every step of the way, which might have been appropriate. But really, the evaluation point is what we talked about: was that if you have somebody that has, you know, a urinary tract infection and then has another one within six months, you want to make sure that you're checking a culture and that you have the appropriate management and treatment for that. I can tell you that it's very gratifying. I work in a college university setting and the amount of education that I deliver is very, very common in most of my patient encounters. Many times these students, it's their first time being away from home and there's a lot of anticipatory guidance and clarification of, of things that need to be done when, a, especially when they don't feel good and they're away from home. Um, the other thing is, is that, um, you know, peri- and postmenopausal women, which has already been brought up during this session, sometimes suffer from vaginal dryness that can cause burning and irritation and can be misconstrued for a UTI. Mm-hmm. So, again, you know, making sure you take all the steps to make sure what your patient has and treat them appropriately, you know, if it's not vaginal dryness, from a UTI that they get what they need rather than um, an antibiotic.
0: Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think about, um, especially in, in women as they age, we, we, we have to be cautious in interpreting urine analyses and uh, in particular, uh, being careful not to treat, um, you know, asymptomatic bacteria in our seniors. So, And the vaginal dryness piece was something I did not really pay attention to until you brought this forward. So Jill, thanks so much.
4: Thank you, Frank. And I want to thank our listeners. Thank you for dialing into us. It's very gratifying.
0: Yeah. So um, uh, you're listening to this in, in late November, everyone. And that means in New England, it's time for snow. And nothing makes me sadder than hurting
3: my back while shoveling snow. Alan, which which podcast was your favorite? Thanks for that intro, Frank. Uh, my favorite was the one we did, which is B B is for back pain. And for many of the reasons that uh, other people have already cited, there's a simplicity to what I'm going to talk about, and the problem is extremely common. So I had presented a systematic review that had looked at five randomized trials that were evaluating a combination of thiamine, pyridoxine, and cyanocobalamin, Basically, vitamins B1, B6, and B12 to be used in conjunction with diclofenac for treating acute low back pain. And I think, you know, there an any practitioner who doesn't see patients uh, who are having problems with acute low back pain. And it's a very frustrating uh, thing, especially when patients have various reasons why uh, certain medications may not be helpful Uh things like muscle relaxants have limited efficacy benefits anyhow, and they come uh, along with side effects of drowsiness. We give NSAIDs, and this is in combination with NSAIDs, but often patients are are in a lot of pain. They want something beyond that, and of course, we're all trying to minimize unnecessary use of opioids, and quite frankly, many of the patients I see don't want an opioid uh, for any number of reasons, and so having something that is a supplement to NSAIDs alone, I think is for me is really helpful. And in this case, what they did was they gave uh, thiamine in in doses of between 100 and 150 milligrams a day, pyridoxine, similar dosages, and then the uh, B12 was anywhere from 750 milligrams a day up to two milligrams per day. I'm sorry, I I meant micrograms on the um, uh, B12. And by combining that with diclofenac, the period of needing analgesia was reduced by fifty percent, which is a huge reduction. And so, uh, the amazing. typical, yeah, the p- typical patients were be, went from being treated for two weeks to one week. Uh, so people getting better much faster. And so, to me, this is something that is very practical. And I've used this information. Uh, frequently in fact most recently earlier this week my sister called me and i was uh giving her advice on helping her with her back pain and this was something that i'd recommended to her and so to me the other thing that this uh highlights is that when you're going to be advising patients about using alternative therapies particularly vitamins uh for certain interventions you have to be prepared to tell them specifically how much. You have to be familiar with what was done in the trials. Because what was done in the trials, at least you have some evidence that it works. And if you're using different dosages or you don't give guidance to your patients, there's less chance that that will be successful. And you also have to be very careful not to extend this beyond what was shown in the trials. The trials looked at low back pain. This is not a generic treatment for all pain, at least at this point in time. So, uh For all those reasons, I was very excited about this podcast, and it's one that I go back to over and over again to remind myself often, uh, if it's been a while, I want to just double-check what are the range of dosages that can be used. The other thing in that regard, Frank, I go to the the drug stores, the supermarkets that have uh, vitamins, and I look at what's available locally. So I'm able to tell patients, well, if you go to this supermarket, they have that. Or if you go to another supermarket, you can get it there. And I think that's really helpful to the patients. They want clear directions. They don't want to be given something vague and left on their own.
0: I, I think it does help uh, um, to have um, you know specific recommendations about where to go, what to take, and, and where to buy. It seems like this is an opportunity for one of those many vitamin manufacturers to to combine these three into uh, one formulation and, and share it.
3: I have seen one brand with that, but it's really hard to find. Uh, even online, it's hard to find. Uh, so that's why I, you know, I urge you if, if this is something that sounds good, go to the stores, look around, see what's available.
2: Cool. Thanks, hey, Alan. So I great paper. Yeah, gentlemen, I want to just chime in because, this, I, as you are well aware, my back doesn't just act up during the snow season, and I've <laughs> actually been, I have actually been using this complex. <laughs> so thank you, Alan. Uh, but so I am to just quickly turn the wheels here, uh, Frank. What what was your favorite? Uh, podcast here uh, during this uh, time period. i I got to say, a million downloads. Unbelievable, Frank. And, and again, this is, uh, uh, you know, thank you uh, uh, to all of our listeners, but really, thank you, Frank. Uh, this is a real tribute to your uh, pulling this team together and ensuring that we are up-to-date and evidence-based in what we do. So, but what was your favorite, Frank? Well, well thank you,
0: Bob. Uh, probably, there, there are many that are favorites, but my, my absolute favorite was, was actually released in November of 2018, episode 95, Easy Weight Loss for Type 2 Diabetes. Now, um, for those of you who've been listening for a while, you know that I used to be very frustrated taking care of obese patients, and now it's easily half my practice are patients coming in for a host of medical reasons, but in particular to help them lose weight. This was a fun study that it was a randomized controlled trial where they added 10 grams of psyllium fiber Um, to patients with type two diabetes versus placebo. In the intervention group, they took um, seven grams of psyllium which is that powdery stuff in the orange container or also comes in capsules, uh, 15 minutes before lunch and and another three and a half grams, 15 minutes before their evening meal with a large glass of water with each. And they found over eight weeks two changes occurred in the intervention group that were hugely statistically significant. The first was that on average over eight weeks, making just this change, there was no dietary recommendation, no exercise recommendation, just adding the psyllium, dropped the patient's weight by on average seven pounds. So seven pounds of weight loss just by taking a, 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 a soluble fiber supplement before lunch and dinner. The other thing it did for the type two diabetics is it dropped the A1C, now this is just over eight weeks, dropped the A1C from on average 8.5 down to 7.5. Again, statistically significant. So um, I started really encouraging my patients with type two diabetes that were overweight and obese to saying, look, this is simple, this is easy. It has no side effects. It'll make you even feel better. You'll have a great bowel movement. But this could help lower your A1C and help you lose weight. And so um, I I still recommend it now. Uh, There's more studies that show if you go higher, you might have an even bigger impact. But for right now, if you can get 10 grams of of soluble fiber in the form of psyllium before lunch and dinner in your diabetics, you'll help them in probably a variety of ways that many other very expensive medications may not. Wow, that is amazing. I love the bigger impact. That's great.
1: Yeah, and again, it's a simple thing, Frank, right?
0: No, it's very simple. It costs yeah. nothing, and it and it works. Um, I want to just um, end uh, by thanking um, you, our listeners. The whole podcast team is grateful for your allegiance and your 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 comments. The emails we get are great. I want to take a second to thank um, the people who helped come up with the idea and bring you, frankly speaking, about family medicine. Starting back with Christina and Kara, Evan, Lee, and and Kevin, our current uh, our current director from Prime Ed, and and we welcome Lisa to the team. Um, you guys have all been terrific. you've you've made us successful. Um, I think our team like to thank Rick Watson for his vision and, and pulling this together when many people, including myself, were skeptical about podcasts. Um, and I want to just end by again, Thanking you, our listeners. Um, uh, Our team was just mentioning before we started recording how tired we are. Uh, This has been a a really challenging six months. I say we're up for another really challenging six months uh, with the combination with winter coming on and flu season beginning. So um, take care of yourself. Um, Encourage your patients to wear masks. And um, we look forward to seeing you in the flesh, hopefully at some live meetings uh, sometime in 2021. Thank you again. Bye now. Join us next time when we talk about the new Veterans Association guideline on the management of hyperlipidemia for primary and secondary prevention and the reduced intensity with which we need to manage our patients. Be sure to join Dr. Frank Domino, host of this podcast, for Primary Care Now, a Prime Med virtual conference taking place December 3rd through 5th. Along with his colleague and friend, Dr. Sanjeev Chopra, Dr. Domino will be a keynote speaker during this virtual learning experience. You can register for free and earn up to 19 CME CE credits by attending. Learn more at www.primed.com slash primary care now. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by Primed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.